You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Hammy, I, I'm, I always ask this question. It's kind of open-ended. Uh, whatever jumps out to you, uh, what was it like for you growing up? What were your you know childhood experiences? I know you you grew up on a dairy farm, so I imagine that's a part of it. But but when you think back to your childhood, uh, what are the things that really stand out? Um. Yeah. I, I guess when it comes to baseball, just uh, listening on a literally a transistor radio. I mean, you hear that term used a lot. Unfortunately, I'm old enough that I had one. So um, kids today have no idea what that is. But as you mentioned, I grew up on a, a dairy farm in um, Wisconsin, about a half an hour outside of Madison. And we lived on the farm and, and whatnot until about seventh grade when we moved to the mighty metropolis of Waterloo of 2,000 people and still without a stop line, uh, stop <laughs> traffic sign. We do have stop signs, but no traffic lights in Waterloo. And um, so for me, it was listening to Earl Gillespie and those great Milwaukee Braves teams of the sixties that, you know, featured the likes of Hank Aaron and Eddie Matthews and Lou Burdett and Warren Spawn and Joe Torrey and Del Crandall. And you can go on and on and on if you're a, an old Braves fan. And of course they left Milwaukee in 65 after that season and moved to Atlanta. So that for me was kind of where the love affair of baseball started uh, because we were farmers. We only got to go to one game a year. We always picked a doubleheader at County Stadium and would sit in the right field bleachers, one because we could afford the bleachers. <laughs> there were only 75 cents a ticket back then. And, and my favorite player was Hank Aaron. And since I was the oldest of five children, my dad allowed me to make the choice where we sat and you wanted to sit by Hank Aaron. So that that's where it all began for me, Jared. What uh okay, so you, you listen to these you know, these broadcasters and, and familiarized yourself with baseball through the radio. Was was there something that pushed you to do that though? Because I imagine with the radio, you know, you got a few different options. Was it your your dad's influence? What what drew you to baseball specifically versus say other sports? And I, I know you you know, you do enjoy other sports, but what what pushed you to baseball and, and I guess sports? Uh, when I guess your entertainment options could have been directed elsewhere? I, you know what? That's a good question, Jared, and it's one I've never been asked, and I've never really thought of it, to be honest. Um, I loved all sports. Um, I played them all, obviously, as an amateur. Um, what pushed me towards broadcasting was my lack of ability to, <laughs> to play baseball beyond high school. But uh, as far as why baseball, I don't know. Maybe I was a product of the 60s, you know, and back then, you know, baseball was still not only America's pastime, but it was by far the most popular sport in the country. And I think when you had a team like the Braves did in those days, um, the way they would hit home runs, and um, they were always a good ball club. You know, they had won the World Series in 57 and lost in seven games in 58. Now, I don't remember those, but um, certainly, you know, was drawn to Hank Aaron. I mean, even when they moved to Atlanta, I mean, I couldn't wait every day to, to get the paper and, you know, look in the box score to see what Hank had done the night before. So while I loved football and basketball, um, baseball was always number one. And, you know, you, you still had the big influence of the Green Bay Packers because, um, 
you know, that was their heyday. That was the Vince Lombardi glory years when they won five NFL titles in seven years. And, of course, as all of your fans down there remember, um, you know, the two epic championship games against the Dallas Cowboys in back-to-back years. So, you know, football was just really then blossoming into the juggernaut that it has become now. But for whatever reason, while I loved all sports and loved broadcasting all of them, um, baseball was still number one. Why? I don't know, Jared. I guess I'm going to have to think more about that after we hang up. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious about the dairy farm. You know, I grew up in Dallas, not necessarily downtown, but I mean, I grew up in a, a big city and then went to college uh, in Los Angeles and, and did the small town minor league thing for a little bit, but certainly had nothing at all that resembled what your experience must have been like. So I'm curious, what what were did, did you have daily chores on the farm and, and what were they and, and what did you take away from uh, those experiences, I guess, getting put to work perhaps at a young age? Yeah, for me, you know, unlike a lot of my friends who are also dairy farmers, you got to remember back then, too, I mean, Wisconsin is the dairy land state. And back in those days, dairy farmers were all very similar in that they all had farms of about 150 acres, 200 acres. You probably milked 50 head. You know, it wasn't the the mammoth conglomeration that dairy farming has become now. I mean, back in those days, you milked morning and at night. Nowadays, they milk the cows three times a day. Farms are now milking thousands of cows at a time. It's, you know, it's completely different as to what it was when I was growing up. But I was young enough back then that I didn't have to, to do milking, and then my parents stopped milking. They had sold the cows. We still lived on the farm. And until we moved to, to the city, and city shouldn't be it, until we moved to the village uh, when I was in seventh grade. But we still had chores, you know. You still had to go, you know, into the chicken coop. And that, to me, was like um, almost like outer space going in there being tortured. You thought you were going to die just moving a chicken to get the, the eggs that had been laid. You know, you look back at it now and you go, man, what a weenie I was. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you had all those chores, cutting the grass, you know, doing all of those things, you know, baling hay. I, I was old enough then to bale hay and, and those kind of things. So, but then we moved to town and, you know, then you became a paper boy and I'd still help out other friends and go bale hay on the summer at, at their places. So I, I wasn't like a lot of kids that grew up in dairy farms that were actually milking cows. By the time I was old enough to do that, uh, we had sold not only the cows, but later the farm. But you would go down to the barn when, when we were milking and watch your parents. And uh, I think what the one thing you learned then, Jared, was the work ethic that it took to be dairy farmers. I mean, no matter how well you milked that cow in the morning, it still had to be milked that night. And if you were going to go to a Milwaukee Braves game, that meant you still had to get home in time you know, to milk the cows. And, you know, they were so reliant on the weather and what that would do to the crops and what it could possibly do to the amount of money you were going to make or possibly lose that year as farmers. It's, you know, those people, their work ethic is second to none. And maybe at the time I didn't appreciate it and wondered why I couldn't live in town and play ball with all my friends. I I have a much greater appreciation for it now. And and I think that's kind of where the love affair started with doing broadcasting because you were out there by yourself. You had to get creative. 
you had to have an imagination to sometimes fill those hours in the evening when everybody else was getting together with friends and you were with your brothers and sisters. All right, so when did broadcasting go from being something you consumed and enjoyed to, hey, this is kind of what I maybe would want to do for a living? When did that happen, and and I guess how did you initially go about pursuing that? Well, I I knew as an athlete in high school that I was a mediocre small-town athlete, and so I wasn't going any further, athletically speaking. I wasn't going to be able to play you know, college football or college baseball, you know, you were happy to play in high school. But to me, if you couldn't play, the next best thing was broadcasting. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, I fell in love with that in high school and kind of knew from that point on that that's what I wanted to to go after and, you know, went to school for that and, you know, started about as small as you could start in Shell Lake, Wisconsin, the uh, living in the cellar. It wasn't a basement, living in the cellar of the radio station owner's mother's house. And, <laughs> you know, you, you couldn't have started much lower than that, taking a woolen sack tape recorder to tape record a football game that later would be played on tape delay. And, you know, it began there about as small as you could begin and you know, just kind of then worked your way up the ladder doing a lot of high school sports down through the years. And, eventually some Class A baseball in Appleton and got to Milwaukee and did the University of Wisconsin football and and then eventually got to Columbus, Ohio and was able to be part of the, the AAA broadcast team. So it, it began about as small as it could for me, but I'm very grateful for that. You know what, Jared? I had the advantage of someone maybe unlike yourself or somebody like my kids who grew up in a big city for me, working in a small town wasn't that big a deal. You couldn't get much smaller than where I came from. And, you know, I think that was advantageous for me because a lot of people quit along the line because they couldn't handle not being in a big city. That was never an issue for me. Didn't realize it at the time, but I look back at it now and I realize it was really a blessing that I grew up on a farm and then in a small town because starting your career for me, those small towns were huge compared to what I came from. All right, so you mentioned your stop in Columbus, and I think that was the last stop before you got to Cleveland and uh, I guess located where you've been now for several years. And and you first, if I have this right, you first worked with Herb Score, who not only was a really good player, but uh, had you know ultimately I think uh, spent thirty seasons as the broadcaster. For the Indians, what was it like, uh, your first big league job, to have Herb score as a partner? Well, it was scary. It was intimidating um, because Herb could be very intimidating. And he was iconic. And, you know, for people that don't remember Herb score as a player, I'll give you this story, and I think it tells you how good he was. Tony Kubek. Uh, the longtime New York Yankee shortstop who played on those great Yankee teams in the 50s and 60s with Maris and Mantle and Barra and Whitey Ford and all of those great Yankees. Tony Kubek, who's from Milwaukee, um, was a tremendous player himself as a shortstop on those Yankee teams. And Tony said, for him, Herb's score was harder to hit than Sandy Koufax. Now, when that's your comparison... I think it tells you how good Herb's score was before he suffered that devastating injury when he was hit by the line drive and 
and could have taken his life and uh, certainly impacted his vision in that one eye and, and his career. But he became such a, a iconic legend in Cleveland for a couple of reasons. One, he was a really good person. And, and Herb was very introverted. Uh, Herb did not seek the spotlight. Um, he was very reserved, but he and Nancy raised their, you know, their four children in Cleveland. They never left here, even though he was originally from New York, but mainly grew up in Florida, as did his wife, Nancy. And then, you know, because he was such a legend, and I think because of the injury, uh, you know, again, you go back to that day and age. I mean, that, that's still a story that people that are around remember like they were there that night. That's how, how startling and impactful that was. And I think people always were very grateful that Herb stuck around and appreciative of how humble he was. Never talked about woulda, coulda, shoulda. Was never bitter about how a Hall of Fame career basically ended. I mean, think of this, Jared. When Herb was a rookie um, in 19... Well, first off, in 1954, the as everyone knows, the Indians went to the World Series, were supposed to wallop the New York Giants. Willie Mays makes that great catch in the polo grounds in game one, and the Giants sweep the Indians. And nobody thought the Indians could lose that year because of Bob Feller and early win and Mike Garcia and the great pitching staff that they had. Herb was in AAA and won 26 games that year for the Indians AAA club and didn't get called up. Think of that in today's era. And then in 55, he's the American League Rookie of the Year, set a strikeout record for rookie pitchers that wasn't broken until Doc Gooden did it with the New York Mets, became a 20-game winner the next year. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about somebody that burst onto the scene, and, and his first two years as a major league pitcher are probably the best or certainly among the best of any two years we've ever seen somebody in the major leagues. So he was never bitter about the career coming to such an abrupt end. And then he kind of became the only thing that people could relate to, Jared, because the Indians were so bad when Herb started broadcasting, you know, in the mid-60s until literally the mid-90s. The one thing fans could count on, players were coming and going, owners were coming and going, but Herb was always there. And so it was very intimidating initially to work with Herb because of that, but he made you feel at ease. And again, you talk about how you have to get lucky in life. I know how lucky I was and how blessed we are to have gotten this job. But to then have worked with Herb was like winning the lottery. Because if Herb accepted you, then the audience accepted you. And that's something I'm eternally grateful for. And I think I read something that uh, the, the team president at the time, Hank Peters, also kind of helped make you feel comfortable and, and yeah. you, you didn't necessarily feel like you were on an island I guess how important was that in, in stepping in because I, I remember the first time I was asked to to sit in it happened to be alongside Matt Hicks at first and then eventually doing some games with Eric how intimidating that was and it wasn't just wanting to get their approval but it was walking the halls and seeing you know mm-hmm. big time executives with the Rangers wondering my gosh what do they think of me you know do they think I'm a total yep. putz or so to have the team president reach out how important was that for you well i didn't know it at the time jared but it was obviously more important than i realized because hank peters had to sign off on the radio station's decision to hire me 
And so if Hank Peters had said no, um, you and I certainly wouldn't be talking today. Um, but Hank Peters signed off on the, on the radio station hiring me to work with Herb. And then Hank, who was felt like your grandfather, you got to remember, too, Hank came from that great Baltimore Orioles tree. You know, he was part of what made the Orioles great in the 60s and, and through the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. Hank Peters was a big part of that. And then to come to Cleveland, I know John Hart and Danny O'Dowd get a ton of credit, and rightfully so, but it all started with Hank Peters. He's the guy that traded Joe Carter for Sandy Alomar and Carlos Baerga, and, and he's the guy that set a process in place and had a plan, a five-year plan, and never deviated from that plan, even partway through that plan when the club had its worst season in franchise history. And so fans here need to be very grateful for that as well. But Hank simply said to me, look, every time we have a Sunday home game, why don't you come up to my office, get here 8, 8.30, and uh, we'll have a donut, and let's talk baseball. And you ask me questions that maybe you wouldn't want to ask in public for fear that you might be exposed or you might feel it's a dumb question. And, I mean, my gosh, Jared, that was like going to grad school you know, and and having the the teacher that who was ever the head of the dean of that program, you know, being your mentor, and you know, it just again, I think because we were also such a a small tight knit group, you know, we were the woeful Indians playing in the worst facility in sports, but there was kind of a badge of honor for those of us that were there working together at that time. And it was a really tight-knit family, and it was led by, you know, the patriarch, and that was Hank Peters. All right, now eventually uh, Herb's score retires and, and you become the guy, and, and you didn't, you weren't unfamiliar to Indians fans because you had been next to him, uh, but at, at that point you were the, the lead voice or however you want to characterize it. What was that transition like, and, and, and maybe what were some of the challenges, if there were any, and, and how did you approach that? Well, again, I get very lucky, Jared, because who do I get as a partner but Mike Egan? And in my mind, I don't care if it's Tim McCarver. I don't care if it's Tony Kubek. I don't care who you want to talk about. There's never been a former player that was better in the broadcast booth than Mike Egan. Um, Mike Egan could do radio and television. He could do play-by-play on radio and television to say nothing about being an incredible analyst. And I, you know, in my mind, Hank, uh, Mike Egan needs to be in the Baseball Hall of Fame as far as a Ford Frick winner. But to get him as a guy, and you got to remember too, Jared, I mean, I watched Mike Egan as a kid. He played for the Milwaukee Brewers. So I knew him as a former player. And again, you're kind of awestruck, but you wouldn't have met a better person. And Mike was so good, so insightful that, you know, it made my transition really simple because of having Mike Egan. And also Davey Nelson at that time was brought in. And, you know, he'd been the first base coach for the ball clubs that were going to two World Series. So that also uh, was a great help. But, um, you know, I, I really have been fortunate with who I've been able to work with because they made me a better broadcaster, but – more importantly, they made the job very easy because they were so good and yet were so gracious and humble about it. So 
I never felt like, I guess I never, and, and that's a credit, I think, to to Herb. You know, Herb never designated, look, I'm the, you know, I'm the king and, you know, you're the pauper. You know, it was always the team, and, and that's what you try to, to do to this day is you don't want people to feel like, oh, okay, this guy's the big guy and this, you know, uh-uh, we're all the same. We're all the same level of importance, and so that's the way you should treat it. All right, so one of the reasons why I, I fell in love with you is that you're a Packers fan. We share that. Uh, but I, I think I, I really admire and, and love listening to you because you are you. You know, the, the the person I've gotten to know over the last few years off the air is the same person I hear on the air. And, you know, I think your your passion and your energy on air is so unique. And, and one of the challenges for a lot of broadcasters is finding their voice. And I'm curious, what was that process like for you? And, and, and you know, were you always so comfortable having so much personality and, and emotion and passion on air, or, or was that something that kind of evolved over time? Oh, I think it evolves, Jared. I mean, you, you can't come in in your first year in the big leagues, you know, come in and try to take the booth by storm. I mean, first off, you have to be accepted by your partner and then by your audience, and I think you have to be very careful. And I think that all evolves as you gain confidence and, you know, um, I think it's also something you also have to be very aware of and realize that it can get out of hand if you're not careful. I mean, the one lesson that, that Herb taught me very early in my career is the longer you're in the booth, the more you feel like God, judge, and jury. And you need to be very wary of that and not let that get out of hand. It's one thing, you know, to voice an opinion, but it's another to make your broadcast all about what you think and you don't want that. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's always to this day, it's a delicate balancing act. One of the advantages I have is not only do I have a great wife, but I have a wife that was in the business. Um, we met in Columbus. Um, she was a very successful broadcaster herself. She was an outstanding news reporter and anchor, uh, both, um, in radio and on television. I mean, she and Martin Savage from CNN uh, were co-anchors when they were going to school together at Ohio University. And you know, Wendy will talk about it now that she goes, oh, my gosh, when we were, you know, they're all classmates. But she said, we all looked at Martin Savage and went, huh, he's had another level compared to the rest of us. And um, but she's been, you know, a great voice of reason. I mean, there have been nights when you come home and not that she's sitting there listening when you have four children, she didn't have a, uh, a lot of time on her hands, but she'll listen periodically. And, you know, she'd be quick to say, Hey, look, you know, we still have four college educations that we have to pay for. Let, let's be a little careful. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I respect her opinion so much and it's always good to have someone there to say, Hey, look, you know, don't, don't get too full of yourself. And, you know, so you try to be careful. But I think more than anything else, Jared, you better be who you are. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I'm an emotional person. I say that because at times I feel it's too emotional. You know, you sit here and you, if you're crying at commercials, you know you've got a problem. But, you know, that's something I've got to deal with. But, uh, you know, I, I, again, I think I was lucky in that, you know, maybe I didn't grow up listening to Vince Scully and try to be the next Vince Scully. There's only one 
The good Lord only made one. There'll never be anybody as good as Vin Skelly. So don't try to mimic him. And I've always felt, and you try to tell young kids this, that's where working all those years, working your way up the food chain, so to speak, you develop whatever style you feel comfortable with. And then you need to be not only comfortable in it, but confident in it and, you know, stick with it. And so, again, for me, if if I lose any energy, I know, again, how lucky I am to sit in that chair. And if I never feel that way, some night when I walk into a booth, then you know it's time to quit. I'm curious if there has been, I'm sure there has been, but but one big challenge or crossroads you faced or uh, some level of adversity in the booth that you had to, you know, it didn't just wash away overnight, that you had to really work hard at either making right or overcoming and if there's something like that that stands out uh, and and what that experience was like for you? Boy, I don't know. That That's another good question I haven't really thought of. I mean, we all make mistakes. There are times to go back to the hotel on a road trip or a home game and you're sleeping in your own bed and you don't sleep very well that night because you know you made a mistake or you said something you wished you hadn't said. I mean, I, I think that comes with the territory and that's why you try to minimize those mistakes and moments if you don't you'll soon be out of a job but um you know there's always those mistakes that you've made i i made a mistake indians greatest comeback ever and you know i thought the indians had won the game they were down 14 to 2 against the seattle mariners halfway through the game in 2001 and that's that juggernaut mariners team that won what 116 games and it was a sunday night game and the indians are down 14 to 2 and come back and win that game and, you know, there was a hit that I thought won the game, and it only tied the game. And, you know, you make that mistake, you know, that's catastrophic in my mind. Um, to that day when I hear about people talking about the great Indians comeback, I sit there and go, yeah, how about the idiot that thought the club had won the game when they had just tied it? So you don't forget those. Um, as far as, you know, Fortunately, I haven't done any F-bombs on the air yet, but, you know, season's still to be played, so, you know, that could be quickly changed. But I I think some of the toughest moments, for me, the toughest moment was getting beyond the boating tragedy of of 1993. I mean, I was personal friends with Steve Olin, one of those that was killed. You know, back in those days, you were much closer to the players in age. So you had more in common, and, and so sometimes you hung out as families more so. I mean, today, um, the last thing any player wants to do is hang out with somebody my age. It's like, look, I have grandparents. Go away. Um, so, But back in those days, again, because the club was just rebuilding and we were all kind of in it from the ground floor, you were much closer to some of those players, the Charlie Nagy's and the Steve Olin. And, and it's the most horrific day i think of most of our lives that were involved with it to see someone who you know had two had a daughter three years old and twins that were six months old and now they don't get to know their father and going on the air and and trying to do games after that was really really difficult yeah it's a a a terrible story and and you mentioned the the comeback i see how good your memory is uh, I'm currently sitting in a studio about 10 feet away from someone who was a part of that. Uh, do you remember who the first reliever 
uh, out of the bullpen after Dave Burba started uh, for the Indians was that uh, that ball game. Oh God, no! <laughs> it, it was uh, it was one of my radio teammates, the great Mike Bassick, uh, who. Oh had, my gosh! Yeah. How about that? Oh my gosh! Give my best to Mike. Talk about good people. Um, yeah, and then Michael, remember too that game was so lopsided. Lou Pinella started taking some of his guys out of yeah. the ball game. No, he and, loves um, talking about it. He six. He, he's very proud that he lasted six innings in that game. But uh, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, and it was a Sunday night game, so the whole nation, you know, well, you shouldn't say was watching, but you know, I think that kind of took it to a different level too because it was a feature game. Of course, those two teams would play each other in the playoffs. But yeah, Mike, Mike had a big part in that game, and you know, it just. Uh, yeah, those those are great memories. That's for sure. It was his major league debut. Was it really? Yep, wow. it was. What a game to to debut, uh, <laughs> Tom. I, I want to ask you this. I, you know, you, you mentioned you have four kids. I believe two girls, two boys, and yep. uh, both of your sons uh, played baseball at a high level. You know, they they got beyond you know what what you were able to get to. You mentioned earlier, uh, kind of high school being the end. Well, well for both of your sons. They were able to play beyond that, and clearly they have a love of baseball. And, and I, I apologize for not knowing, uh, you know, how interested your daughters are in baseball. But you know, <laughs> I, I don't have, I don't have kids yet. But I've always, to my friends, not that I'm the only sports fan in the bunch, but I, I've always been the biggest. And my friends have always asked, well, you know, what if your kids don't like sports? And you know, my my first answer is, well, I, I don't care. I just want them to be passionate about yep. something. But knowing this industry. And how much time you spend, uh, you know, with, at around baseball, in and around baseball. I, I've always said that I think it would be cool if they at least liked it, because then maybe they'd enjoy hanging out with their dad at work sometimes. Because that might be for two weeks the only time I really get to spend time with them. So, what was it like for you in this role, having kids who who clearly loved baseball, and and how did that make life easier for you as a dad? Well, yeah, and I I think you hit it. Um, squarely on the head when you said you just want your kids happy and to be passionate about whatever it is that they're passionate about. And, yeah, I mean, if if you're a dad you, and you're in the game, you'll love the fact that they love sports. But, if we, you know, we were lucky from the standpoint we never pushed it. They just gravitated toward it. And, you know, uh, neither of our daughters played athletically outside of grade school, but they were really good singers and dancers and so you know what their dance recitals and their musicals and their plays they were as nerve-wracking and as much fun for my wife and I as you know sitting there watching the boys play but it, it did it it uh, it brought a uniqueness that um, I think they'll appreciate later in life I mean Nick's got um, pictures of the great 95 team Albert Bell of all people had said to me one day, why don't you bring Nick in here and get a bunch of pictures with all these players? Elder. And that that's something I never would have done because you never wanted to impose. And because of Albert Bell, you know, Nick's got all these great one-on-one pictures with Nick, with Albert Bell, with Dave Winfield, with Eddie Murray, go on and on. Kenny Lofton, Carlos Baerga. Um and you know, then we were lucky that they both were were really good athletes in high school, and and uh, both played D one baseball at Kent State. Nick started on the team that that goes to Omaha. I mean, 
going to the College World Series is a big deal for any kid or any university. When you're Kent State and you get to Omaha, that's a miracle. And to have witnessed that was, you know, that that's just something you'll take to your grave. And then Bradley played at the same school because of Nick. And, you know, you know I got to a place like, you know, Lubbock, Texas, to watch Bradley play against Texas Tech in the NCAA regionals. And, uh, you know, so you, you, get, you get to do those kind of things. And they both played pro ball. Nick played three years in the Indians farm system. Brad played a year of independent minor league ball and um so again you're happy when they're happy but yeah it was really a bonus that they loved the game and and fortunately you know you thank the good lord every night they were so much better players than i ever could have dreamed to be evidently my wife was a much better baseball player (laughs) or softball player than she ever told me